0: You're listening to The Court Leader's Advantage, a podcast series for court professionals and by court professionals. Brought to you by the Courtleader.net in cooperation with NACOM, the National Association for Court Management. Courts are now in the midst of reopening, yet the coronavirus is still very much with us. As of this recording, the United States has had over 2.3 million confirmed cases and over 16,000 new cases reported just yesterday. We've experienced 121,000 deaths from the virus. New projections say we will top 200,000 by the fall. In over a third of the country, the infection rate is actually getting worse This alone makes this crisis unlike any courts have ever faced before. If it were a hurricane, a tornado, or an earthquake, within a few hours to a few days it would be over. Efforts would turn to clean up and repair. We still cannot do that, even though the country is working hard to return to normal. Nevertheless, this seems like a good time to look back and take stock of what we have learned so far from the crisis. I'm Pete Kiefer and welcome to the Court Leaders Advantage podcast series. Our focus continues to be on how courts are coping with the coronavirus crisis. Today we have with us Zanelle Brown, Court Administrator for the Third Circuit Court in Detroit, Michigan. Dorothy Howell, Court Executive for the Probation Division in the Superior Court in East Orange, New Jersey. Mark Weinberg, Court Administrator for the Seventh Judicial Circuit in Daytona Beach, Florida. Angie VanScoik, Court Administrator with the Municipal Court in Breckenridge, Colorado. Liz Rambo. Trial Court Administrator for the Lane County Circuit Court in Eugene, Oregon. Mike Rowdy, Court Executive Officer for the Superior Court in San Diego, California. And Rick Pierce with the Pennsylvania Administrative Office of the Courts. I appreciate all of you joining today's podcast. So after more than three months of managing through the coronavirus crisis, what would you now add or change to your continuity of operations plan? Sunnell? What would you add or change to the Third Circuit Courts plan?
1: I've been thinking about that question, and I'm looking at our plan. I'm working with our court administrators about what was missing. And what really shows up for me is that we didn't contemplate that there would not be a physical location to go do the work. We either had identified that there would be other court campuses we could go to, other courts or build a temporary place. And make do, we never contemplated that the physical locale would be in people's homes. So we have to go back through the plan and look at that to see, now that we've lived through it, what things need to be added. One of the things that I think that was a bit very helpful throughout this time was our investment in our emergency alert system, ad hoc. So it gave us a way to communicate with everyone quickly. You got it on your cell phone. You got it on your work computer, your home phone, whatever the messages were that we needed to relay. So I think we did fine as far as communications. It was just that piece of not having that physical place to land, I think, is a struggle. And we're going to have to go back through our plan to look at that. What if we do have to, again, retreat back into the homes as a workspace?
0: Rick, how about the plans in the Pennsylvania courts? This is a great question,
2: and I think part of my comments will definitely echo what Zinell just said. Uh, I'd like to just point out what we've done in Pennsylvania from the outset and review how we got here. Back in 2005, which I know was a while ago, 15 years ago, Pennsylvania started to look at establishing a Continuity of Operations Plan. It was based upon the, a model that was put forward by the National Center for State Courts. And at that time, the big fear across the globe was avian flu h5n1 and that was the greatest fear that we were going to have a pandemic of course it never materialized because it was very difficult to transfer from from bird to human but we still were in the process of planning for it so as we began to develop our cognitive operations plan based upon this national center's model and tweaking it based upon pennsylvania rules and statutes and policies and procedures and protocols we uh, came to the conclusion that more likely event that would put us activating a continuity of operations plan would be a fire or flood, something that would displace us from our building. And so we think we were one of the first states, perhaps even the first state in the country to promulgate a COOP foundation for all the trial courts in the state and that it was mandated. And this was adopted in 2008. Now, like I said, we did not focus on a pandemic, but we'll fast forward ahead about a few years past 2008. Now, I was meeting on a tabletop exercise with a bunch of statewide officials from, from all three branches of government. We were explaining about the authority and the separation of powers and how we would work together. But never envisioning a shutdown of courts to exceed two or three weeks. And this was even coming from the Department of Health that said, Hey, Wayne, we'll declare a shutdown. And of course, I had to step in and say, Well, you know, you're gonna have to get the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court will make that call. Obviously, they'll be working in concert, which they did do this time. But what has happened here, as Zanel just aptly stated, pandemic of this nature that we have had with COVID-19 is you really have no alternate facility because courts must operate remotely. All courts are closed. And that encompasses all things done remotely, all facets, all hearings, the record, filing and retention of the record and recovery of that record. Everything must be done remotely. Nobody can get into a building, at least for at some period of time. So I think to, to start, I would say that really a court administrator must really have a high level of familiarity with most, if not all, the functions and the duties and responsibilities with these functions. I think that some of the things that we have found in our plans, obviously, you'd like to address a little bit more dealing with remote access and communication that are certainly at the outset. But what we have found more valuable than anything else was the planning process. I think the ability to set up and have these connections, these relationships established uh, ahead of time, because when the, the crisis happens, this is not the time to be handing out your business card. But we have found that really in these instances that emergencies of this nature, the resources can become scarce and some of these most valuable resources are your manpower and the use of facility. And so we have to address them, obviously. But I would echo in some respects what Zanel just said and focus on communication and remote access.
0: Mark, what would you add or change to the 7th Judicial Circuits plan?
3: As the others have said, I think we'll place some special emphasis on communication and remote access. As you talked about in your introductory remarks, our group was based primarily on the notion that we'd be closed for a few days, perform some mission essential services while we're closed, but we would return to normal operations in relatively short order. Uh, Of course, the pandemic has forced us to change our way of thinking on that. So uh, we'll go back and take a look at our plans and update them accordingly. I don't want to underestimate the value of having a plan to help guide us when responding to whatever may come our way. But as those of my colleagues with military experience are fond of saying, plans are vitally important for preparation, but when the combat starts. Nobody's looking at the plan for what to do next.
0: Dorothy, what about your court in Newark?
4: I would have to concur with the overall theme um, that has been stated for the need of establishing a concrete, remote, and virtual component of the continuity um, operations plan. But I would also include that as a result of the current pandemic, we have identified those functions that are essential, that can be done at home, and therefore they won't be returning to the office. So that leaves less folks that have to come into the building to perform those functions. I would also add that we should invest more and add it to our plan, the remote technology that is required. We found that during the pandemic, a lot of staff don't have access at home. So we have looked into hotspots, we have looked into phones that could be part of equipment that's taken out based on the needs of whatever unit they're in. But like everyone else is saying, this is one of those learning experiences. And I think that the thing that resonates most with me is the need for technology and the need to have units that are prepared to work remotely going forward.
0: Angie, how about the town of Breckenridge?
5: Um, well, as I mentioned back when we began this series, I did not have a coop to work off of. So the pandemic has definitely given me the opportunity and time to start creating one um, that's as comprehensive as I can get it to be uh, right now. I do plan to get into meetings with some others so it's you know more thorough than I can put together myself. But like others have said, just having the remote capabilities like what would be needed, uh, having that technology available in the best way and best practices to put into place for if any type of emergency uh, comes up, that we would be able to have something put together. You know, like with Zanelle in terms of, she mentioned locations to be able to have, hold court um, as a possibility if something came up and when you don't have that you know, how do you make that happen? So, like I said, just getting this created is, is something that I have going on right now. And, you know, it's been helpful to, to know that it's something I should have in the first place.
0: Liz, what would you add or change in the Lane County
5: plan?
6: The Plans in Oregon's judicial districts are coordinated by the Security and Emergency Preparedness Office out of the State Court Administrator's Office. And so we're very fortunate to have that resource and we update them regularly in helping us update them and keep them up to date. But I have to say, we were asked as our Security and Emergency Preparedness Office began to realize that there was going to be a problem in mid to late February. They sent us out some new business assumptions and an appendix to put on our continuation plans for uh, specifically for this pandemic in 2020. And some of the new business assumptions were really great. For example, face-to-face contact between judges and parties and sheriffs and others may be limited or unavailable. And that was great. So we responded to these assumptions and did a quick update and appendix to our business continuity plans. But just like everyone else is saying, we didn't anticipate it lasting for so long, even when we first did these in uh, the first part of March. I think they were due like the first week in March. So what we really need to put in the plan now is a recovery procedure for a long-term pandemic situation specifically. Our recovery procedures for influenza were short-term because they focused mainly on an influenza outbreak that would make staff unavailable for short periods of time where you'd be Too short staffed, but this is a situation I think that um, none of us could have imagined at the time. So, going back and getting some of those long term recovery procedures in place that everyone's talking about, whether it's teleworking, long term communications in particular, I noticed that our emergency alert system that we were using only text messaged to all of our employees, which is fine if you just need to say, don't come to work, but it's not so fine when you need to do things like share. Uh, Massive amounts of information. So, we had to quickly do things like gather everyone's email into that system, their personal email, which we had hesitated to do before just for their own privacy. So, it has been a huge learning curve. And I can see, frankly, an overhaul of our business continuity plan from start to finish to incorporate the changes where they need to go. So, that'll be a lot of work, but good work now that we're learning.
0: Mike. How about the San Diego Superior Courts Plan?
7: Well, interestingly enough, in 2007, we had a major wildfire here in San Diego, which required us to shut down the entire system for one week. And we learned so much from that experience. Essentially, all facilities, all activities, all the employees uh, were closed. And so our continuity of operations plan really was based on that experience. The one thing that that plan did not do, though, is to take us through a two- or three-month closure, and the conditions are very different for both of those events. After one week, we could recover relatively quickly. We could get matters rescheduled, and in very short order, we were back in operation. With this experience and what we're going to be facing going forward, and this has already been discussed as well, is the recovery process. You know, we estimate here in San Diego, we have something on the magnitude of 1,600 pending criminal trials that need to be done. How are we going to do that? And so, you know, the one thing our continuity of operations plan going forward will look at is a short-term closure and a long-term closure, because once you get into that longer term event, you've got to start looking at alternative processes to the traditional in-person proceedings. And you've seen us throw across the country lots of technology very quickly to try and at least get some number of hearings or processes underway, knowing that you're going to be closed for weeks or months. Technology has now become a very important part of continuity of operations planning. How can you establish or reestablish operations from home or from remote locations? Those are capabilities that were much more limited in 2007 for us. And maybe even going forward, we may see court activities that are no longer done exclusively in the courthouse, where the employees can work from home and or the public can access court without personally coming down to the building. So echoing many of the comments from others, we actually had a COOP plan that envisioned us being closed for a week. We're going to have to, uh, going forward, adjust that to a plan that could be for a much longer period of time. and, And how do we Kind of keep the system at least running at a very minimal level until we can get back to full operation.
0: Rick, what would you change or add to the emergency operations response plans in the Pennsylvania courts?
2: Peter, this is a very timely question for us because we were actually in the process of amending rules of judicial administration in Pennsylvania to make it mandatory for all courts to file an emergency action plan with the administrative office with the state court administrator on an annual basis the courts are required to do that with the continuity of operations plan but it's voluntary for an emergency action plan so we were in the process of doing that when covid 19 came and we were basically closed our operations the uh, report uh, was not disseminated but it's still a possibility that that could get reenacted but like i said it's going before the court Uh, There is a difference between COOP and emergency action planning right now, though, to define them, really, COOP is really a long-term impact on your court operations, and EAP addresses that immediate crisis or the chaos phase. And we do know that in many of our courts in Pennsylvania, they have addressed one of the same, but we have been teaching them for about 12 years now that there's a differentiation. The players are the same in many instances but the questions that are posed and sometimes the, the solutions to those questions may differ and certainly questions do. Uh, certainly, I think the big things with emergency response plans and PA that we want to make sure that we have is how we communicate and how often we communicate. Who's the message bearer? Who is the authority and responsibility to disseminate that message down the chain of command, which is always of utmost importance in emergency. For the simple reason that individuals that are receiving the message must have confidence in the uh, the messenger, that the message is accurate and that the message speaks to them. I think in our situation, starting at the outset, as I've mentioned in a previous podcast, I think the communication was excellent coming from our state court administrator. The message was accurate, the message bearer was very credible. He was the state court administrator. He retained the authority and the respect throughout, and not, not just because of the title that was identifying him, but because of the consistently accurate, thoughtful, relevant message that was put forward during the crisis. We do think, though, the mode of communication may change for our next crisis, and we have to prepare ourselves to deliver the message in a mode
0: and in the manner that will be received and understood
2: by all the parties.
0: Given what you have learned, what new laws would you advocate for to improve how your court could respond to another epidemic? Zanel?
1: We were really challenged with some of the filing deadlines and things that were due to expire, like our personal protection orders. And I think that we could actually contemplate, you know, in another pandemic, learning from this one, how those laws should be changed. And just as a side note, one of the interesting things that occurred for our family division was when the government issued the stimulus checks and those were intercepted for child support. So some laws that go naturally in normal circumstances probably need to be suspended when there's special circumstances like a pandemic to make sure that we get the right result, the intended results, and make sure the impacts are not harmful to necessarily one party against another. And even the parenting time laws when in, in light of a pandemic, being very clear about those so there's a lot of laws that we can change, especially, I believe, in our family court area, the filings and the deadline for filings and statute of limitations.
0: Rick?
2: It's a difficult question for me to answer. I'm, I'd be curious, though, to see if our General Assembly will be taking up laws that would address or do something that address due process, and how do we ensure due process yet relax some of the restrictions of in-person proceedings and dealing with them remotely because in the sense that we've had to deal uh, with proceedings remotely for the last three months, even though now we are begun to resume operations in many of our courts in, in Pennsylvania. So I think that's a point of focus. I agree with what Zanel would say, and I agree uh, extending it maybe out, out to, to landlord-tenant issues as well. But I, from a personal perspective, I would like to see how that would be done and to ensure that due process is given to everyone who comes before our courts and fairness, procedural fairness as well. Uh, But at the same point in time, addressing that need for these court hearings to continue to take place if we are not able to use our court facility.
0: Mark?
3: Well, as I think I mentioned in a previous episode, the Chief Justice of our Supreme Court established a work group on the continuity of court operations and proceedings during and after COVID-19 for the purpose of formulating recommendations to help guide the court's response. He recently extended the term of this work group until December 31st to, among other things, proposed statutory and rule changes for the Supreme Court's consideration? So I think I'd defer to the work group to answer that
4: question. Dorothy? I would uh, concur with what has already been stated, but one of the areas that has alarmed me the most is in our family court with the domestic violence restraining orders. We had lots of victims that reported to the courts because our current process asks that you only go to your municipality if it's after hours. So I would hope that the law would be expanded to include that during a pandemic, the possibility of filing for those orders could go directly to the municipalities, regardless of the time. Also, I think that although we expanded the laws that give us when and how we could file for unemployment or use some sick leave, I think that should also include how that should be used during a pandemic so that those who are affected, whether directly or caregivers or parents, will be able to use those sources as a means of income during the pandemic as well. Angie?
5: Uh, Being a municipal court, uh, there's, and granted the state laws and such, uh, do kind of govern how we operate, but at the same time, I don't think there's a whole lot I could add um, to than what everyone else has already mentioned. Um, just being able to to have the ability to have things in place to make due process work and the time it's needed to work. You know, most of my cases are traffic and code violations, so there's not a whole lot of laws that would change how we run. Liz? So as you know, in Oregon, one of the things
6: we're struggling with is our constitutional and statutory rights to a trial that have only limited amounts of waiver of the timeline. And and what we're learning through this is that, as we've all just been talking about, the timelines are extraordinary. So Oregon's Chief Justice has already undertaken to put into a special session that is upcoming in the next month or so some draft legislation to authorize the Chief Justice to extend certain time to trial requirements with uh, findings of good cause um, and authorizing presiding judges to to do those extensions if, if absolutely necessary in emergency closure situations in particular. If Oregon had not reopened in phase one in the last few weeks, are undertaking these jury trials uh, would be uh, very difficult, if not impossible. And so that draft legislation is ready, already to go. But in the future, I can see the chief justice potentially getting some more general authorization to extend timelines and filing timelines when the governor designates or declares an emergency of some duration in the state so that we don't have to go back and um, do the specific, incident-specific statutory revisions that we're talking about in the situation we're up against right now. So that's what I understand the plans to be so far in Oregon.
0: Mike, how about in California?
7: I think echoing many of the earlier comments, what you're going to see here in California is there's already legislation pending which would give much broader powers to the Chief Justice Right now in California, we have a very decentralized system, and so essentially you had 58 counties requesting 58 times for relief in various scenarios, which had to have driven the chief wild you know, without the number and volume, and they're only good for a limited number of days. And so you're, uh, we're on the cusp of legislation which would give the chief broader powers to approach issues from a statewide perspective and to make it a bit more uniform than what we currently see today, which is people opening and closing and doing things at different dates and different times. In addition, I think we're going to be seeing some legislation come out that deals with due process issues, which, of course, have been a real problem given the length of the closures. You're going to see changes in family law, how restraining orders, unlawful detainers. I mean, there's still so much that's going to come out of this as constituencies get to the legislators to talk about the practical impacts of essentially not having a functioning court system for some period of time, and what steps can we take to provide some modicum of access in the event of another pandemic.
0: What new court policies, court rules, or procedures do you plan to put in place to prepare for a future pandemic? Sunil?
1: It's our hope that we will have our e-filing system up in all of our divisions. We did a makeshift e-filing process for our PPOs. And like Dorothy was saying, that is you know, a major area of concern when you're talking about the personal protective orders. We're also going to do something with training for our leaders. Some of our leaders are very new, and I think this was very frightening to them, how to juggle everything and still try to make sure the court's needs are met. So to definitely do a debrief and some training with the various leaders in the courts and to then debrief and to make sure that we hit the spots. Like I said, I know we had some of the technologies, but did we do communications as well as we could have and should have to get feedback from others who are involved, to look at places where we've implemented the technology to see if we've improved some of the systems, some of the things that we can adapt going forward. We're still working on that whole jury services issue. So there's a lot to be had as far as a postmortem and a discussion, and looking forward to that.
2: Rick? here you know, I, I hope that some things will take place, some changes will be taking place, and that there will be a, an after-action report, so to speak, on what has taken place during the pandemic and that some changes will become permanent. I think some of the relaxation on restrictions of our advanced communication technology, your remote access, in fact, prom- even promoting its use. I like to see a quicker response, perhaps to our statute of limitations and rule suspensions, although our Supreme Court was pretty fast on that. And as Zinell, so said earlier, I'd like to see perhaps maybe a e-filing for all of our jurisdictions. Many of our larger courts do have it, but not certainly not all of them. The one thing that I would say about court policies and court rules and procedures, they are generally written in broad language, but sometimes they can be a bit restrictive, and that does make it a challenge, especially in a situation where we're in with a pandemic. Or any kind of court closure where you're activating something like an emergency response or continuity of operations where you need to be flexible. I think one of the things that we have learned was the planning process was vital, as Mark alluded to earlier. Even if all the questions were not necessarily answered in the plan, and the planning, you know, the plan itself could be rendered somewhat useless during some of the points in time in the crisis. But what we applied in Pennsylvania, what we implied in our message to the court administrators and all our president judges over the last 12 years is to be flexible, but also to kind of think through the problem. You know, you solve one problem and then you move on to the next one. And my colleagues in Pennsylvania said to me, we've had to change by the hour some days based upon what things have come about, whether it's something that they've heard from the court or just something from the Department of Health that they've had to make adjustments on the fly that fast. You know, as you're solving a problem or answering a question, another one usually pops up and you address it and you just continually move on. Eventually you come out on the other side I will say that in regards to just a little bit of props for my colleagues uh, here in in the Commonwealth and always across the country too, I'm proud, but I'm not surprised, but I'm really proud of how court administrators and, and especially my fellow panelists who have thought through these issues, they've thought through the problems and they've made our courts better prepared, not only for another pandemic or emergency, but just for the next challenge that arises as we move forward into the future. Mark?
3: Well, in terms of local policies or procedures, I I think we'll, uh, when, when this is done, take a step back and take a look at things like, you know, our remote work policies and do we need to have differences in whether or not the employee is requesting work from home or if the court is mandating work from home and whatever changes may result from that. We'll also take a look at our means of communication. I think the way uh, Liz had mentioned earlier, having multiple contact points for each of the employees, is something we'll definitely take a look at. One of the other things we just uh, just recently came to mind is, you know, one of our policy has been, "You're sick, stay home." Well, now it's morphed into, "If you think you might be sick, stay home," or if you're awaiting a test result. Stay home, so I think some of those internal procedures will also be taking a look at revising
4: Dorothy uh, here in New Jersey, we are entering into the phase two of reintegrating staff back into the office, and as a result, the first thing that we had to do was to create some sort of training by way of a webinar that would explain to staff what that meant, and also answer some of their concerns as far as health or precautionary measures that would be put into place for their safety, distancing in the offices. And so one of the things that we talked about, and it's actually, this is our first day going back into the office, was a return to work mandatory webinar. And that training is tracked. And you have to have the training before you actually enter into the office. So that's one of the new training policies that came out as a result of the pandemic. The other thing was the issuance of PPE. We, by way of the sheriff department, are doing thermal testing. And so we issued to all of the employees reusable masks. We had to purchase sneeze guards in our customer service areas. So with that, there has to be policies that mandate those things to be in place. Uh, I sit on one of the subcommittees that talks about what do you do if you, as Mark stated, if you feel that you may have had some exposure. And so on this uh, subcommittee, which is has HR involved in it as well as other stakeholders, we have to be very careful how we craft the notification of people's medical um, issues because sometimes those issues could be related to something underlying as opposed to their exposure to COVID or another pandemic so we're in the process now of looking into that but i do believe that as a result of a conversation a post-pandemic conversation we're every day something comes up that we find that we have to amend or expand current policies or procedures
5: angie um, I really like what everybody else has already mentioned. Uh, the one thing that I had thought of was to have uh, some type of standing order um, that the judge would issue that would allow us to be able to continue court cases due to a pandemic. Um, that was one of the sticking points I had uh, when everything first happened, was just trying to figure out what we would do with the dockets that had already existed. It's like, where do we you know, put everybody? How do we notify them? Um, So just having something like that in place in the future, I think, would be very beneficial. Um, I do like the idea of having something that states for personal protective equipment, just having that. I know our HR currently has that before we go into work, we have to take our temperature and let them know um, if we're well enough to actually be working or not. And I don't know how long we plan on having that in place, but right now that's something that we have to do before we actually physically go into the building to kind of have that as a a safety guideline. And I like what Mark said, even if you think that you might be sick, you know, to have that capability to say, hey, maybe I should stay home today and not make everybody else potentially ill. Liz? So one of the things
6: I love about talking to you all every week is that I get to hear all of your great ideas, but the unfortunate part of that is when I went to answer this question, I only had one or two things on my list that I would put in place, and now I've been listening to you all, and I have about a dozen, so I want to thank you all for that. (laughs) But some of the things I was thinking about before hearing all of your great ideas were that... We're lucky in Oregon because we do have statewide e-filing and forms generation process that goes into e-filing. So we do need to do some expansion of that in the domestic relations areas, and that's already in the work. So that's one thing I was thinking about in terms of court policies and procedures. Also, In terms of rules, I believe that our uniform trial court rules should probably address specifically remote proceedings and the direction to parties with regards to remote proceedings. And then if that's done statewide, can be floated down to local rules that give some local specifics about how attorneys and parties would access the court in remote proceedings specifically, because I think that's going to be the world of the future. And then for me personally, and we talked about this before, but just making sure that our business continuation plan really incorporates all of the pieces that I need it to, to be effective for this type of situation, whether it's a better written communication policy or even just HR policies around telework. Because as Anel was saying, some of those policies that you have can be restrictive. And in our case, our telework policy was restrictive. So we just ignored it, which isn't good. So we need to rewrite that and figure out how to do um, emergency telework assignments. So I want to thank you all for the long list that you gave me.
3: Mike?
7: I would echo the comments of everyone here today. I think maybe even add a couple extra things to the list. Electronic filing, clearly the use of technology in the court system, I think, has been accelerated significantly. I mean, we were all heading in that direction. This has sped that up uh, incredibly in my opinion i mean what we were thinking about doing over the next several years we've been doing over the last several weeks and so i think that's going to continue the real question will be how much of it sticks we've talked about that in prior discussions setting up the infrastructure for remote hearings as things get back to a sense of normalcy will that continue forward or will we be moving back to an in-person environment i, I Tend to think more and more people, as they're more and more comfortable with the technology, will continue to opt for alternatives to in person proceedings. So, we're going to have to adjust our policies and procedures to do that. Remote work on behalf of the employees is something I think that is probably here to stay. Uh, We hear about that in the private sector as well, where businesses are now talking about radical restructurings of the workplace to facilitate greater at home or remote work presence. I think the other observations that I might make this is not over. It's going to continue to be with us for some months, and I think we're going to continue to have to evolve and continue to explore new ways to get back to as much normalcy as possible. I can't envision at this point how we're going to handle jury trials, given some of the facilities constraints that we have as far as social distancing goes. I think the pandemic will affect the design and operation of facilities in ways that we're still going to have to contend with. If you're lucky enough to be thinking about a new courthouse, I can imagine you're going to be thinking about that courthouse in radically different ways than you were just a few weeks ago. And of course, the other observation, something we've talked about earlier, is we're going to be doing all of this in a budget environment that will be restricted. So I think it's going to challenge all of us to come up with creation and innovation. At the same time, we're looking at how we can work with Difficult financial conditions that that are coming in here in the next couple of years. So, lots of things to do, lots of things to consider, and I think it's going to continue to evolve over the coming months until we get back to some sense of normalcy.
0: My thanks to Zanel, Rick, Dorothy, Mark, Angie, Chris, Liz, and Mike today for sharing their thoughts on improving our continuity of operations plans. And how to prepare for the future. Once again, our thanks to you court professionals listening to this episode and working every day to keep our local courts accessible. We appreciate everything you do. This episode concludes our series on the courts and the coronavirus crisis. Next month, we will return to our normal monthly podcasting schedule. Please join us on Thursday, July 16th, for the next episode in the Court Leaders Advantage podcast series. Remember, if you have a question about this or any episode, email us at CLA Podcast, that's all one word, at NACOMNET.org. We will try to answer your question on a future episode. This has been the Court Leaders Advantage Podcast Series. I'm Pete Kiefer, and thanks for listening. Thanks for joining us today. The Court Leader's Advantage is a regular podcast on courts and court administration. Today's episode will be available on our website, on Facebook, on iTunes, and on Twitter. If you have questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes, email us. Our address is podcast. that's all one word, at nacumnet.org. I'm Pete Kiefer, and on behalf of our guests, the Court Leader website, and the National Association for Court Management, Have a great day! The views, information, and opinions expressed during this episode are solely those of the individual presenters. They do not necessarily represent the position of the National Association for Court Management.